Welcome back to the Non-Standard 14er Podcast, the podcast that brings you everything the root description leaves out about hiking and climbing Colorado's 14ers. I'm Jacer Jack, and I'm joined here today by my wife, Tayjack. Hey! And Short Rope Stifler, as always. Hey! As well as Walk Mode Pat. Hey! And our friend, Dogler. Our guest today is a man that needs no introduction. He's an absolute legend in the 14ers community. We're honored to have him on today, Mr. Andrew Hamilton. He is the current FKT, or fastest known time holder, for the completion of the 14ers. It's a standing record since 2015. His time is absolutely mind-blowing. It's a mere 9 days, 21 hours, and 51 minutes. And honestly, it would take a full episode just to list his accomplishments, but some of the highlights are that he still holds the record since 2003 for the fastest self-powered 14er completion. He did that by bicycle, connecting all of them. Um, and he also is the first person to do a Holy Nolan's completion, which is the Nolan's 14er attempt plus Holy Cross. And he's, uh, he's also known for his completion of Snowlands, as he calls it, which is the Nolan's 14er traverse in calendar winter. Um, also the first person and uh, only person, as far as we know, to have done all of the 14ers in a single calendar winter. So just an incredibly accomplished individual, super humble and, and really fun to talk to. So we're honored to have him on the podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Cool. Are you inside an airplane? <laughs> Where is he? Uh, <laughs> greenhouse? Are you in a fuselage? <laughs> uh, this is where I work. I am down in my basements. And uh, actually, it's kind of a funny story. So I've got a big adventure plan this year. I'm actually work. So I work inside my I've got an altitude tent. So I'm just oh. trying to. Uh, but uh, let's see, I want to try to turn this so I can like uh, be. I've never and, had uh, an so, altitude tent before. So yeah. So anyway, I've had this thing since like 2003 and I used to sleep in it. And uh, but I spend more time. I don't really. I mean, I, four hours a night, you know, is usually what I end up sleeping. And so I was like, you know, I spend way more time at my office, you know, working than I do actually sleeping. So I should just like move my office inside my tent while I'm getting ready for this thing this year. So wow. that's kind of what I got going on here. It's kind of a tight fit, but I got it's perfect for COVID, too. It's my own little bubble, you know. <laughs> that's exactly what you should say, that it's a COVID precaution and no one would. Ever yeah. It. <laughs> so, right. so what altitude are you at then? Does it make it? Oh, well. I don't have it on right now. It generally like the let's see. Here's my chart. It's been getting me down. It's really old, so I'm just wondering when the thing is going to go kaput. But basically, it gets me to about uh. Well, it does get me to about thirteen thousand feet when it's when it's doing oh, well. It's working at <laughs> wow. thirteen. It's yeah. really nice because uh, you know, a lot of times when I I haven't climbed like over the winter or something, you do your first couple of climbs and uh, or you go up into the fourteeners and you just get these pounding headaches and stuff. So this helps me sort of just get past that. So at least I sort of start. I'm just better acclimated. Oh, there's one of the secrets already. That's amazing. So, That's and, uh, and also, you know, there was this, the guy that uh, blew away Nolan's last year, Joey. Yeah, I forget his last name. Um, but he did it in like 41 hours. You know, so I met him afterward and he told me he spent like, you know, he spent the whole winter like sleeping at like 15,000 feet. <laughs> so it helps. That's a secret. You know, it, wow. it does help to try to get acclimated, you know. Just introduced everyone, Andrew. Uh, I'm Chris. I reached out to you through the forums. Uh, next to me is Jace. And then Taylor's next to his. Next That's to my him. wife. Super nice, nice to meet you guys. We're kind of the ones that have been doing the podcast together. Uh, in the bottom, there's uh, Patrick. Call him Walk Mode Patrick because we tease him about skiing Democrat and walk mode. 
He's a regular host of our guest, of our podcast. And then Sean, we met two cool. weeks ago. We were doing an episode on ultra running and uh, his giant route around Yale. And since so we talked all about ultra running and different routes on Yale and we decided we'd invite him back to ask you some good questions. And, and, and such, he's such a big fan of yours. So fanboy right here, man. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I've been. Uh, I remember digging up and and reading your escapades from uh, pre-cave dog. That's how oh, far. Okay. Oh, is, man. <laughs> oh, that's pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So to give and give you an idea, Andrew, when you posted in 2015, you're going after the record. You posted on the forum in fr- Friday at 5:03. Dogler had commented 13 minutes later about good luck and go for it and be fast and be safe. So. <laughs> He's one oh, of your wow. biggest, biggest fans. Oh, oh sweet. Okay, cool. <laughs> Was that on the 14ers.com? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, sweet. And so our podcast format, we just kind of end up trying to get into a good conversational flow, and you can kind of feel like we're just friends talking around the fire, drinking beer, talking 14ers. It's kind of the kind of the goal of the uh, the podcast. Any thoughts, any thoughts, Sean, when you joined two weeks ago? I didn't even know we had done an interview. We were just talking the whole night. It was good times. Great. Yeah, sounds great. I uh, One thing I can talk about for pretty much forever is 14ers. So you've come to the right person. <laughs> cool. Well, cheers. Thanks for joining. Yeah, sure. super glad to have you on, Andrew. Uh, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I need a beer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. More bang for your buck at 13,000 feet. Right. <laughs> All right. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So is that thing inside your house or are you sitting outside? Oh, I, so I'm just down in my basement. I, I have an office upstairs, but there was too much furniture for the tent in there. So I just uh, moved it into the corner of my <laughs> basement down here. And uh, yeah, so it gets pretty cold. That's why I got the jacket on. But, uh, <laughs> what do you do for work when you're not out playing on the 14ers? Oh, well, I'm a computer programmer. You know, I have been for forever, basically. And uh, I've, I mean, I've worked from home since like 2000 and uh I had taken like seven years off. I thought I was just going to not work anymore as a stay-at-home dad. But then I got uh, divorced, and I had to learn how to work again. <laughs> so, um, But I got started with um, you know, a company that was all stay-at-home. So when the pandemic hit and everything, it was sort of like, you know, same old, same old for me. So, oh, I, well, I've got three boys. The oldest one is uh, 17, and he's 17. heading off to college uh, uh, he'll be turning 18 in uh, August, but yeah, he's heading off to college this year. So that's kind of a big deal. But I've got four kids, uh, three boys and, and a daughter. I actually we saw a picture of the your daughter climbing Little Bear. Yeah, I follow your Instagram page with Andrea, the A2 Summit. And we saw oh, yeah. the, the Little Bear pictures on there. That's pretty awesome. That is oh. incredible. That was, she's still, so you know what happened on that trip, which was insane, is we were going up the hourglass and you know the night everyone's nightmare some people up up above knocked down just a whole bunch of bowling balls at us and uh i grabbed her we were right at the worst possible not the worst possible spot my my second oldest son was at the worst spot like right where you're climbing and fortunately he got out of the way but i grabbed i called my daughter bird so hard that her shoes stayed on the ground i just literally pulled her out of her shoes and like threw myself on top of her and uh, and then the uh, there was uh, Andrea and her friend were down below. Fortunately, they were able to duck. But man, I really hate that route. You know, if you want to talk about routes that I hate, so so we've sworn off the hourglass route. It's really annoying. I don't know if you've been up there recently. Someone always wants to put up a rope in the worst up there. After you go up the hourglass, they send it to the right, 
which <laughs> knocks down all the boulders. It drives me crazy. So anyway, so that that my daughter really remembers that mountain. Like she's she's like, you know, I'll say, oh, we're gonna go climb Bear Peak, you know, just up in Boulder for training, and she'll be like, oh, little bear. Having <laughs> <laughs> flashbacks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have they all finished the 14ers, your kids? Are they getting close? Well, well my oldest two have finished it. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. So uh, so I, I took my oldest two when they were really young. That was sort of before I got back into the records and, and stuff again. And uh, and so they finished when they were really young. They love the mountains. Neither of them are really very athletic, but they still love the mountains. And uh, but then I started doing my records again back in like 2014. You know, I'd seen homie go for it and I got all inspired. And so I really didn't have time in the summers to take all the kids up. And it's quite a chore to get all four of them up a mountain. And uh, and so, you know, the younger two weren't really like they weren't really thrown to the to the fire like the others were like, you know, when they were four is when I'd start taking them up. And I don't know. I just that works great. I mean, now I just, it blows my mind, you know, but uh, but but so the older two or sorry, the younger two, they just didn't like it quite as much. And, uh, you know, with four kids, it was just too much. So it's kind of sad because, you know, so the first two still loved it. But the second two, they're not too enthused about 14ers, you know. So kind of sad. Maybe they'll come <laughs> around. Who knows? You know, I think that could happen one day. Yep. Yeah. Mine had a about a five-year hiatus. He loved doing it when he was little. Didn't want anything to do with it through about sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And now, like, when his high school buddies hear that, like, he likes to climb mountains, he's like, oh, maybe I do. And and has been going to, like, all the local high school kids. And, you know, he's like – the experience that all the others don't have so they want to go with him and he's like yeah this is cool okay. so, they come around right i hope so yeah i hope <laughs> they do and i know like when i was younger i didn't start climbing until i was like 11 and uh you know and uh and and a lot of people i met they just did it a few times when they were kids and then when they grew older i don't know they sort of like they just had that experience or something well, Andrew, it, it seems like you've definitely caught the bug. So what was it that really started your career in mountain climbing? Well, I mean, you've done some well, incredible I, things. I, oh, well, I still remember the very first climb I ever did was with my stepdad. It was just, we lived in Cortez at the time. Well, I didn't live there. I lived with my dad in Salt Lake City. But over the summers, I'd go visit my mom and my stepdad down in Cortez. And uh, one day, just out of the blue, he's like, he had, when he was younger, he used to climb in like the, like, New, like upper, up, upper state New York, um, you know, when he was younger. And so one day he's like, I'm going to go climb a mountain. And so he, he just, you know, and he would look at, you know, the old school maps, you know, these like the USGS 7.5 minute topos. And uh, so we went and climbed Mount Hesperus, which is the, uh, the highest 13er in the La Plata, just outside of Durango. And we had a great time. I mean, I fell down my first snowfield. Um, and I still remember like him, he, he didn't, you know, we, we wanted to come down some faster way. So we came down this like ice gully. And like I said, at the bottom of the gully, I like slipped and fell down the snow field. And, uh, but he had, he had a great time and it's sort of, he's the one that really got the bug there. So he started taking up the family, you know, on, on, uh, well, well, first we did some of the mountains in the La Plata's and they were epic back then. Like people don't appreciate now. That like just, you know, most people, you just look at your weather app and be like, oh, I ain't going in the mountains tomorrow. It's going to be raining and stuff. I mean, we hit, we had the worst rainstorms, lightning storms, just everything. And, uh, you know, I was, I tell people one of my, one of the saddest things I think is that a lot of these old mine shacks 
that saved my ass like several times back in the day, you know, where you're in these rainstorms. I still, my second mountain was called Spiller Peak. That's also in the La Plata's. And we got caught in this horrible rainstorm. And so we bailed. We were like 100 feet from the summit. And this lightning strike hit like 20 feet in front of us. And finally, that's what when we're like, okay, we're going to go down. So we headed straight down this scree field. And we went into this old mining shack. And there were actually miners in there. And, uh, you know, they gave us, you know, they showed us some of the gold that they had panned. And, uh, you know, and they gave, gave me some hot chocolate, you know, but then we were in the wrong valley. So we had to like hike back over some ridge to get to my mom who was waiting with my with my little sister in the car like all day long, you know. So I don't know. It was just different back then. You know, now it's like, you know, he's got perfect weather. There's a billion people on the trails. And uh, and so I do. And, and, it, and the thing that kind of makes me sad is there's several of these old like mountain like mining huts that. I took shelter in back in the day and now they're just, they're gone, you know? And, uh, you know, it's like, I'm, I think they're reaching the point where, you know, like the roofs have caved in and once the roof is gone, then, then they don't have much longer before they're just, you know, a pile of wood. But, uh, oh yeah. So sorry to finish answering your question. Like, so sorry, long winded response, but, uh, so that was the start. And then, and then after that, he got into the 14ers and he started taking us up the 14ers and, uh, yeah. So I almost finished them all when I was a kid. And then I went to college and became a raft guide. And, and, uh, and then I, when I was a raft guide, I remember just looking. I was a raft guide in Buena Vista, you know, so right there by on the Nolans route, right? And so I just remember that was in, well, back in the old day, there was this book. It was the, like, Lou Dawson guide or something. Not, no, not Lou Dawson. That was a good guide. It was, oh, Bjornman and Lampert. If you guys know that book, that, used to, that book used to drive my stepdad insane. Like, it, it was, like, the, the one book at the time. And, and it would have one route and then a lot of history. And the route would always get you lost. So he'd always be cursing those guys. And so when I was a raft guide, I got the first edition of Roach's book. And that thing was like a revelation. It had all these different routes and the maps were amazing. And he had the, in the beginning of the book, it was a little thing about the 14er record. And at the time, it was like 16 days. And I, was, I remember thinking to myself how cool it would be wow, what if I could climb all the 14ers in 14 days? And, uh, and so I made that my goal. And, um, and so, so, yeah, so I don't know. So I spent uh, my la right after I graduated from college, my little brother and I still needed about 20 mountains left. And, and so we, uh, we spent the, the few weeks in the summer. We finished them all off. And then the next summer, I, I made my first attempt on the record, you know, back in 99. So that was kind of how I, I got started. So you had this dream of setting a record while you were still in college or or yeah i i don't know i it was just roach's book you know just reading he had a little history about the record and i don't know i just like wow i was like wow i could do that and i just started thinking about the thing that gets me excited on these records is you just start thinking about the cool ways you can link up all the peaks that just aren't commonly done it's so fun, you know, so I'm not really, I'm not really a very fast guy. Like if someone wants to race me up, you know, long speak, they're going to beat me like guaranteed, you know, but, but what I really love to do is like find crazy ways to link all the peaks together and then not to sleep <laughs> while you're doing it, you know? And, um, and so that's where I, what I really, really like. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, when I'll get close to one of these records, you'll just sit there dreaming and then you'll come up with some new idea and, and you'll get really excited about it. And uh, so, so take us to nine to ninety nine. You broke the record, right? Under uh -huh. under fourteen days. Yeah, you're what twenty four year old at that point? Uh, let's see. Was I twenty four? Yeah, I was twenty four. 
And then what then what happened? Cave Dog came back and then broke that record a year later. Yeah, well, you know, that's kind of that was kind of a, a, a moment for me. So in 99, I mentioned I was just kind of like a kid, you know, I was just a raft guide who got interested. I didn't really research any of the previous attempts other than Roach's guide. And so, you know, um, in that in that guide, he had talked about the 3000 foot rule, but it wasn't really written down anywhere. It was to me. It was like, well, it's about doing the effort. 3,000 feet before you get to the summit and, and down. There was a couple spots where I ran into some issues with it that year. And, uh, and, so, and I wrote all about it afterward. It was such an amazing experience. Like, you wouldn't believe the stuff I went through in that record. It actually really changed me. I mean, just the fact that I, I survived that record with all the crap that I went through. Um, it, it, like, I finished it with, with like, this confidence that like wow i actually set off to do this thing and i did it you know like for example i don't know if uh you know if you remember if you were falling back then but but like uh you know on, on my third day well first of all i started in completely the wrong place you know i started in the crestones when any you know self-respecting 14 year record setter you got to start in chicago basin you know because then you can take the train up there off the clock right but i didn't even think about that so i had like hiked in from purgatory and i'm there in the middle of the day and I, I met a guy running down up there and whose buddy had fallen and I didn't know it, but he had died up there. And so that guy was looking for help. And so I went up there thinking the guy was still alive. And, uh, and so I was calling for this guy, you know, he, he was somewhere, you know, below Ela somewhere. Right. And so I was yelling for the guy and I eventually found the guy and, and found that he, he, he hadn't made it. And uh, so I was able back in 99, I had this old phone. I was able to actually get a hold of the search and rescue which was crazy because like you're at the base of Elis nowadays, try to get a connection on your phone. But I was right standing right there at the guy's body and, and I hadn't been able to, I had just dialed 911 and nothing had happened. And then I just heard this voice on the phone and, and 911 lady got on there and she said, we'll go up to the ridge and, and we'll have search and rescue get, get back with you. You know, so, and that was sort of like the beginning. Like, so, so that happened. And for years, I always saw that guy's face whenever i mean i made me a much more cautious hiker you know like i used yeah. to feel, think i was a little more cocky but um but then i got really more a lot more cautious in class four type of stuff you know um which is probably good you know i mean i i just was a lot more careful but that set me off like my timing was off off i got caught in snowstorms and just like it was just uh i mean i believe me i i don't have time to talk about everything that happened in that record but um but so I finished that record. And the thing that really hurt me, though, was that, oh, I mean, I didn't even have a four wheel drive for crying out loud. You know, so I had to hike in all these extra spots where other people had been able to hike up there. And uh, and so but there was a spot on pikes. So I only knew about the bar trail. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go up the bar trail. So I'm just going to drive up the road, have my mom drop me off at 11,000, you know, whatever, 100 feet and hike up the road. You know, so we just happened to get there and I start walking up the road and a ranger drives by he's like you can't walk on the road and i was like well you know so i explained what i was doing and he's like well you can't you can't walk on the road and so i didn't know that other people like well you can hike off the road he didn't mention that you know he was just like sorry you can't do this you know <laughs> so my mom took me my mom drove me so then i didn't know what to do so i went up to devil's playground which is like thirteen thousand feet and i repeated like there's a steep hill and i repeated until i'd done three thousand feet you know and so and so anyway, you know, you can argue that that's even harder because you're at elevation, you know, 
But what really hurt me, and there was a couple other spots. That was the worst one. There was a couple other spots. Like I did another repeated 400 feet on like a Guanella Pass as well because Guanella Pass just started a little too high for the 3,000 foot rule. Yeah. And, uh, and so there was that spot. And uh, I didn't think anything of it at the time, right? So I wrote about it. And then I was kind of horrified when the previous record holders, they had been like my heroes when I had kind of been planning this out. It was these two guys by the name of Ricky, Ricky Denisic and Rick Trujillo. They sent me this packet about how they were disputing my record, you know, and, and because I had cheapened the record. In fact, in the Denver Post, they said, you know, Ricky Denisic was going to go back the next year and, and, and get the record back because Hamilton had cheapened the record. And I was just so upset because of everything I'd gone through, you know, and, uh, and, and I didn't really know, you know, nowadays I know like, so, so Teddy, so anyway, the next year, you know, the, Ricky went back and he did break, he took a day and a half off my record. And I still remember, you know, they were talking like, you know, and he had run into some trouble too with like, there was some solar storm that year that had caused miscommunications and everyone runs into trouble. But then a month after they took a day and a half off of, of my record, Cave Dog comes and takes another day and a half off. So he took three days off and, and Cave Dog, you know, he, uh, he was unbelievable. Like he was like a genius. Like nobody had thought of ways to, to go through the mountains like he did, like doing the San Juans in two days. Like that was just, that blew my mind, you know? And, uh, and so, but at that point I was kind of bitter from the, uh, the response I'd gotten from the Rickies and I was more of a mountain biker anyway. So that's when I decided I was going to do it via bicycle. And so in, in 2001 and 2003, that's when I sort of completed, you know, the 14ers in under 20 days, like, you know, via bicycle, like self-powered. And, um, and then I was kind of just like, I was done with 14ers for a while, you know? And, uh, and so, so cave dog was, he actually came up to my house and, I think he was fishing if I was interested in going for the record again. And I really wasn't at the time. I was like, it's all yours. I'm focusing on the biking, you know. And, uh, and so he was a great guy. And, and my competitive drive, too, of, I was, you know, I had this, like, sort of anger at, at the Rickies for treating me like that, I, I felt, you know. Um, and so I probably would have gone after the record again back then because I, I did know all these places I could save a lot of time. But because I like Teddy and I was interested in this biking version, I just I wasn't really into the 14 record anymore, you know. So and, and then, yeah, I would just I mean, I did adventure racing. I did other stuff, had kids. And I really didn't even think about the 14 record again until Homie went for it in 2012. So how uh, you know, you always think about the FKT kind of critics now, the armchair quarterbacks with the Internet, with GPS and all that stuff. It sounds like that was still a thing back before all of that like how did you verify your fkt and how did the critics bring that into question without gps and internet and all that yeah thanks for following up on that because i forgot part part of my point from that whole long-winded story was that you know like um nowadays now it's changed like after teddy did it he like after he saw what so he knew how i felt about when i did it and then these guys were were saying that i had cheapened the record and stuff like that he knew how I felt about it, you know, because he had talked to me. So he decided, well, I'm going to make these rules and I'm going to lay them down in stone. And so he did. He made all these rules. At the time, I, I didn't I didn't like the rules as much as I, I, I like them better now. But at the time, I was like, oh, good grief. You know, he's got everything's written down in stone. And so when I did the biking record, I was like, OK, I'm going to simplify this thing. The only rule is you start and finish in the same location. That's it. 
Done. Oh, yeah. And, and, and when you're on your bike, I, you know, I was like, well, you can't draft off other people. That's like cheating, you know. So <laughs> those are like sort of like my two rules. But um, uh, so like as far as the rules were, though, at, at that point, it was pretty clear. Here's a set of rules that you got to follow. Now, at the time, you couldn't prove it. It was really you just sort of had to do it. And, you know, you sort of, I would just tell people, like, why would you lie? You know, like, why would you lie? Like, nobody would lie about it. Well, fast forward 15 years, like now I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's like, thank God we've got satellite trackers. You know, we've got all this stuff because just times have changed. But back in the day, I really don't think there were that many people that would have like just, you know, completely faked it. You know, I mean, I think everyone was pretty legitimate, but there wasn't any proof. You know, you just I mean, I mean, what did the Rickies do? I think in, in 2000, Ricky Denisic, he took these little Colorado flags and he would leave one on the top of every summit. And I think he got crap for littering, you know, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Like for me, it was like, well, you know, I would, uh, you know, I'd sign every register that that had a uh, that actually was up there, you know, so that was kind of something you could do if there was a register, you could sign it. But it's not proof, you know, I mean, so there's no way to really prove it. Even now with the satellite trackers, you know, if you were really committed to it, you could just like, hey, buddy, here, will you go do that mountain for me? And they take the tracker up. So, you know, there's always got to be that, you know, that, you know, that honesty, you know, you, you, you know, I mean, just hopefully, you know, people aren't trying to get out there and just, uh, you know, you know, cheat the cheat the record, you know. So but that's what I love about what I really love about Cave Dog was he laid down this set of rules, and I think it, it helps protect the integrity of that record. You know, it's like because, you know, you can't really come along now and not follow those rules because you'd kind of be cheapening, you know, everyone that sort of came before you. So I like the fact that in the 14er record, it's got these rules. Now, you could come along and say, hey, look, I think the 3,000 foot rule is stupid. Like when you're in the 10 mile mosquito range, I mean, these mountains don't even rise 3000 feet from their ground floor. So I think the 3000 foot rule is stupid. And, and so I think nowadays, you know, what you could do is you could just say, Hey, I'm going to go do the record and this is going to be my style, you know? And, uh, and I think that's fine too, you know, with, so with lots of these FKTs and stuff, you know, I think the, the standard is, you know, you just sort of say, well, here's the way I'm going to do it and you do it. And, you know, and then, I think there's several, you know, well, I mean, you guys know Nolan's, you know, you've got supported, self-supported, you know, unsupported, you know, paste, you know, you, you can do all different versions, you know? So, um, but yeah, it, you know, and I don't have, you know, Nolan's is a little different for me because being kind of old school with uh, doing everything by yourself, you know, so the 14 er record rules are, you're basically, it's basically fair game if you're below 11,000 feet, you know? So if you're within 3,000 feet of the summit, you're basically on your own. People can be with you, but they have to hike behind you, you know, because you, you know, they can't be guiding you. Um, you know, like you got to know the routes on your own. You have to carry all your own stuff. You know, Teddy was famous for like, not even accepting like a banana from somebody that had offered him a banana, but banana on top of a summit. So, uh, you know, and then I forget what are the, let's see. So yeah, no one can carry anything for you. Uh, yeah, no, you know, uh, you, you know, no guiding you. Um, I thought the, yeah, I th the current one was like, you have to notify the previous record holder of your attempt. I thought that was a cool. Oh yeah. Cool yeah. You know, that. that's a good one. I like that one too, but that's not the sort of one where anyone would be, be like, you, you cheapened the record. You didn't call the previous guy, you know? Right. So like, I didn't know how to get a hold of Teddy and, uh, and, you know, fortunately, you know, he heard about when I was going for it too, but I like that one because, you know, you don't want to, 
you know, on something like that, that, you know, you, you put a lot of time and effort into, it just kind of sucks when someone's like, oh, hey, did you hear like three weeks ago, some guy totally destroyed your record. You know, that's kind of lame. It's kind of fun to be a part of it, you know, For and sure. so I, I like that. I do like that record. And I think people should, although I'm really hard to get a hold of, like, I, I don't even have a Facebook account right now. So I would forgive people if they didn't get a hold of me on, on one or two of the records I still happen to hold, you know. I like that rule because it seems like a nod to that person, like a respect of what they've done and yeah. the groundwork that they've laid. I was going to ask, what was it like? The Have you met Cave Dog one time or two times now? What was what was it like when you guys got together after uh, after he broke your record? Like you guys have a beer together? What, what did that look like? Well, he came up to my house in Jamestown. I can't remember when he, he called me. So I had heard about him. Actually, it was kind of a crazy day in uh, – I was climbing the third flat iron one day and, and uh, somebody was like, Hey, do you know, Jerry Roach is up on top, you know? So I was like, Oh wow. You know? So I climbed up there and, uh, and that day, Jerry Roach. So this was in 2000. He was like, Oh, Hey, you know, this this guy cave dog. He's, he's on his fourth day of his attempt on breaking the record, you know? And so that was the first I, I'd heard of that. But then after the record, yeah, Teddy just got a hold of me and, uh, or, or let's see, cause you know, he had contacted me via email at some point before, hadn't he? Because, uh, yeah, because, you know, that was I told you how he was like he was he, he was basically like looking for information on like the rules he should set up. And he was, you know, he, he was like referring to like how, you know, I had sort of, you know, had this issue with the previous record holders. And uh, but but so then, yeah, so 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 then I found out he was doing it from Jerry Roach. And then, uh, yeah, so then afterward, I, I forget exactly when, but he reached out and just came up and he had dinner at my house in Jamestown. I used to live in Jamestown outside of Boulder. Loved it when I lived there. But but yeah, and, and that was really, uh, did I? Yeah, and that was really it. I mean, I don't think I ever saw him after that. You know, then he moved or he lived in Oregon and he, and he still does, I think. Um, and so then the next time I heard about him was, you know, I was in 2014. I was trying to break the 14 year record and I was doing great. You know, I was. I was, you know, doing great until like day eight and a half. And then I got this injury and, oh man, that was, that was a brutal, uh, brutal one. And, uh, and I didn't quite make it, but I was like a day and a half away and I still close when I, when I had to quit, you know? And, uh, and I guess Teddy had gotten his plane ticket. He was going to come out to be there at the end. And then I was like, so I felt really bad, you know, cause he would have had to cancel the plane ticket. But uh, but so then the next year when I actually succeeded, he came out and that's where I met him. I mean, he everybody like loved him. You know, he came out like at Long's. There was something like 40 or 50 people that were waiting there for me to finish. And it was this cold, snowy night, you know, and it was like what was taking me so long. You know, well, there was like all this fresh snow up on top of the peak. It was really hard. And uh, and so anyway, he was down there hanging out with everybody. And then when I got down there, you know, he held my arm up in the air and gave me a little trophy that he had made for me. So he was amazing. And I think he sets the standard for a record holder whose record's been, been broken, you know, like, so he's, you know, he's like the man, as far as I'm concerned. And basically he's the one that sort of brought the 14 year record into the modern era. You know, it totally changed after he did it. Like after he did it, there, it was no more of like these, you know, you get these fast guys, like the Ricks were, were fast, you know, like one of them had had one like Pikes Peak Marathon. And they would think of it in terms of like, well, here's day one, day one, we're going to go do these peaks, then we're going to go have a big dinner, and we're going to sleep for 12 hours. And then we're going to go day two, we're going to drive somewhere, going to go these peaks and like, and they, they're so fast, like Uncle Progress, Wetterhorn, you know, an hour up and down, bam, done, you know, 
And, and then, you know, then they'd sleep for 12 hours. But, but after Teddy did it, it was like, it was like a big, long adventure race. It was like, it was just one continuous route, you know, and you just, you just kept going, you know, and you fall asleep on your feet if you had to, but, you know, just like, it totally changed the character of, of the record. And, uh, and so I credit that to him and just like the genius way that he had to go through the mountains, especially the San Juans, because the San Juans were just like, I mean, I never, I mean, I still blows my mind thinking about doing them two days. I mean, it took me four when I did it in, in you know, the, the record in 14 days, you know, it took me four days to get through the San Juan, or was it longer because of all the snow? It might've even been longer, you know, but, but so that was really, I mean, to take two days off and just in that one section really just changed everything, you know? But, uh, but yeah, so Teddy, Teddy's a good guy. And, uh, you know, as I, you know, have done the record since and been more in the FKT, FKT, you know, community and stuff. And now the way they are, I never would have made the decisions I made back then, you know, in 99, I never would have like driven up to 13,000 feet. I mean, now it's clear. You got to follow the rules if they're laid down. Right. But back then it's like I said, there weren't really any rules. Like, I still remember, I don't know if you guys, you know, know of Danelle Balangi's, you know, the female 14er record. That was also back in 2000, like 14 days and eight hours. Mm. That was another just ridiculous attempt. Like, oh my gosh, she had this weather. That, that girl, like, so, like, Teddy, you know, if there's bad weather, he doesn't care. You know, he's going to hike through it. Danelle was not going to hike in bad weather. So when you read her story, it was like, you know, halfway up. Lindsay and then all oh, the weather moved in so we came down we drove over to the saw watch and we did Albert then we came back to do Lindsay got halfway up oh another storm oh. And so you just look at how completely inefficient it was and so to still finish in 14 days and eight hours like blows my mind in yeah. fact I contacted her once because we were kind of friends back from adventure racing and oh man she didn't remember where her old write-up of that was because I had read it once the whole write-up and so I guess it's lost you know if anyone ever finds this thing I'd love to read it again, but, uh, man, it was, it truly blew my mind. I think it was three times up Lindsay. She crossed paths with Ricky as Ricky was breaking the record, you know, at the time. And, um, you know, and, and so, but you know, when she did pikes or sorry, pikes, it was sort of the same thing. She was a lot smarter than I was. And she drove to the summit of pikes and then descended 3000 feet down the bar trail and then came back up. And so when she told me that, I was like, oh, my God, oh, like I never even thought to do that. But then when Teddy. Came over, yeah. So, yeah. Right. So then when Teddy came to my house and was like, you know, having dinner, I mentioned that to him. And he was like, oh, I hadn't heard of that. I'm going to have to add a new rule. Like you can't descend first and then <laughs> and then come up, you know, so he didn't like that at all. But the point is, is that at the time, you know, it wasn't written down, you know. And so, you know, it, to oh, me, it was clever. just about the effort. But nowadays, you know nowadays i would never like like the three thousand foot rule you know i'm you're out there measuring that to the foot with your satellite tracker so if someone's gonna you know was going for for, for the 14er record and they were starting like 100 feet too high you know i wouldn't want to get on there and and like i want to be teddy you know i want to be the gracious guy when someone breaks the record i want to be that guy but it would still drive me nuts if they weren't following it to a t now sure you know and that's just the way it is, is, is now, you know, right. but you got a lot of people that are going to do that bickering for you, man. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, I will say, so in 2015, I was, it was pretty amazing. Like, you know, the 14 year thread was pretty popular. There were thousands of posts 
and uh and there was it was a pretty positive thread you know there was the one issue where i had just had a chance we had gotten um uh, andrea had uh, you know uh, who was on my crew at the time and she's now my girlfriend but she uh she had got, uh, made friends with the guy who sits at the gate at calabra so you know the year that i didn't quite finish <laughs> she's sitting there waiting for me i was running late and they're talking to that guy. His name was Ron. And, uh-huh. and he was a great guy in person. You know, he was a really nice guy. And so he's like, you know, so he's like, oh, yeah, you can be late. You know, we'll wait for you. And, and no problem. And then and, and it's kind of a kind of nice because Calabria can be a foreign now that you have to be there at six o'clock in the morning. It's kind of a pain in the butt. You know, like really Calabria is a great peak to do in the dark because it's an easy one. So, you know, you want to do like the Little Bear Blanca Ridge in the daylight. You know, oh, you want to do the hard ones in the daylight. You don't want to you want to do the easy ones like Calabria in the dark. But if you have to be at Calabria at six in the morning, it just screws up the whole day. So, you know, anyway, so I did have an advantage in 2015 because he was like, yeah, you can come in and do it you know, whenever you get here. You know, so that was really nice. So meanwhile, this other guy, Brett, was going for the record and he went for it a couple of times. And he kept calling Andrea being like, hey, you know, can you call Ron and get special permission for me? And, and you don't know this guy, Ron. He's like a cowboy guy. He, he doesn't want no one calling him up. Like, you know, he, he's like, he doesn't want, he doesn't want that. So we, we're like, listen, listen, we can't give out his number. He'll, he'll kill us, you know, but just go to the gate and meet him. He's a nice guy and tell him what you want to do. He'll let you in, you know, but that was a little hard for Brett. So anyway, I do remember there was some negativity over that whole issue. And, um, you know, and, and so, and it was an advantage for sure. Um, but, but he didn't go and talk to the guy, which I really think he should have done. You know, cave dog even was quoted in one of the articles saying that's part of the logistics. That's in the same way, figuring out how to RV around and shuttle around and connect all the ridges is talking to Ron at the gate is part of the the logistics. Yeah. Yeah, totally. In, in Calabra's always changed, you know, before in 1999, the day I was heading out to go start in the Crestones, like knock myself in the head, not the crest that you idiot, you know. But uh, anyway, I find out that Calabra had just been closed off to climbers, you know, and, and like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Calabra's closed. So I remember I got on like the tax property record search and I found the, the lawyer that was representing the, <laughs> the ranch and I called the lawyer and he's like, OK, I'll call him. And like so when I was up in the Crestones, you know, and, and like, like, so this guy was getting permission for me to show up and he got permission, you know, so it just, it always changes. And I will say, I've got this big record I'm going for this year. And, uh, you know, Ron, Ron left. So now I'm stuck back with the rules. I called now it's Carlos down there. Carlos, is Carlos. Guy too. We just... oh, you know, Carlos. Yeah, we know. We met him two years Carlos. ago. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So a couple of years ago when I was in the 14ers, like in wintertime, you know, I call him up and he's like, oh yeah, you know. I'll meet you there in the morning, you know, and he just, it was just a day in the middle of winter and there were like 80 mile an hour winds. And I just remember he met me there and he's like, are you sure you want to go up there? <laughs> and I was like, I have to, you know, and, uh, but even, so I felt like he was a pal, you know, so I call him up and told him what I was trying to do. And he's like, Nope, you know, you gotta be here at six o'clock in the morning. And wow. I was like, well, could I book two days? So I have a little flexibility. He's like, Nope, you know, cause that might, you know, someone else that wanted to climb, couldn't climb. I mean, that's a good, a good point. But, uh, so anyway, uh, this year, you know, I am on a firm schedule. You know, I got to be at Calabria at six o'clock in the morning, like, like, like everyone else, you know? So it's just, wow. you know, it's like you said, it's just one of those logistical problems you got to sort of get around. Have you um, announced publicly what your next project is? Are you, are you comfortable talking about that at all yet? Well, I've, I've been mentioning it for years, but it's been put off for, for years too. 
Yeah. So I, it's like, so my, I've wanted to do a centennial record. <laughs> and when I started thinking about the centennial record, nobody had even done them in a, in a season. And now I think three people have done them in a season, two guys via bicycle, you know, um, you know, so it's like, you know, and that's like a 70 day project. And then there was this guy last year who did this cool thing. He did something, it was something big in three different States. It was like something big in like Idaho, Wyoming and, and, uh, and Colorado. And it was all self-supported. And so his time on the Centennials was, you know, like 35 days ish or something like that. Wow. And, uh, but I'm trying, I'm going for like 14 or style records. So I'm trying to, I, I want to break 20 days. And I've been thinking about this thing for years. And, you know, the new thorn, thorn in the side is like, I don't know what's going to happen with the Calibron. So I'm, I'm trying to come up, you know, because the Calibron, you know, they put up a sign and they're saying the Calibron's closed, you know, but then I've heard that, well, they're probably going to be open by June again. And, uh, and, and again, that's, you know, I don't know if, if you heard about that, but like the, some of the, you know, there's always been an issue with frost and, uh, but, but now the owners, for some reason, they, you know, they blocked the road and they're like, now we're closing off all of the, the land up here, you know? And honestly, when I, when I hear their side of the story, I don't blame them. Like it's something to do with like, so for example, I guess in 2019, somebody was mountain biking on air force land and they fell into a sinkhole and they sued the air force you know, and then they they won like seven million dollars, you know, and this whole thing started back when like somebody like fell into some mine on the Wilsons and then sued the landowner. Anyway, if, if you were a, a minor land, you know, a, a landowner out there, I'd probably be nervous, too, you know, because people are always trying to go like exploring into the mines. I mean, I'd like to go explore into a mine, too, you know, but um <laughs> You know, so I can't I can't blame the people either. But if I was a landowner and there was all this liability over my head, I'd be nervous about it. You know, so hopefully they're just I mean, it's the gist I got from reading about it was that they're kind of like trying to get the liability laws updated for them because apparently they're not very good is what their lawyers are telling them. So I'm hoping I say give them the liability. I mean, if you're going to go on their land and be stupid and break your leg, I just I don't think you should be suing the landowner, you know. Hmm. So that's it. But that's a big thorn in the whole centennial record. So if I don't do it th this year, that'll be my excuse. <laughs> you know? How are you navigating the, 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 the new parking rules and logistics at the Maroon Lake area? Oh, well, that is actually uh, one that I, I haven't 100 percent decided on. So but I think I got a great plan that I really like. So cool. I do cool. like I do like style points. And to me, style points are just making it extra hard. Right. When you don't need to. And uh, and so anyway, one of the big adventures that Andrea and I did uh, a couple of years ago, we called it the Centennial Elks record. And so what we did was we just did on foot You know, we started at one end of the Elks and we did all the 14ers and Centennial 13ers in the route. So it basically adds Cathedral, uh, Thunder Pyramid and Hagerman to the 14ers in the Elks. And that actually makes it pretty ridiculous because you get Cathedral to Conundrum Traverse, which is awesome and then you get the thunder pyramid to pyramid traverse oh. and you still get the bells traverse and then the 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 worst of them all is hagerman to snowmass yeah. you know and then you still got to go from snowmass over to capital and then to, to finish it off we we finished off with sopras which was like way further away than we were expecting but uh so i was thinking to avoid the parking rules maybe i could just basically do that again just go from so the route, so the easiest way would, would be do like cathedral, conundrum, castle, and out, and then come back up to the Bell's parking lot 
or maybe do that after you know the other ones. But from Castle, you could you can drop down to Conundrum Hot Springs, go over Copper. There's a couple passes called Copper and Triangle Pass. Then you drop down and you can actually get up Thunder Pyramid from the east side. And I love that route on Thunder Pyramid. And nobody nobody knows about this route. It's just one that I I found one time, and uh, it's <laughs> it's so much like better than the reputation of Thunder Pyramid. I mean, it's like beautiful grassy ridge and and uh, so anyway. It, it, is, it is a bit of an extra hike, you know, it's like, you know, it's like an extra probably six or seven miles of hiking. And at that point, you know, I'll probably be on like, you know, day 14 out of 20 and I'll probably be completely toast. So it probably won't seem like a good idea at the time. But if I, you know, am really worried about the parking issues, that is an option. And then because I'll still be using a 3000 foot roll, someone could hike in and meet me right where I leave the East Maroon Creek Trail and go up Thunder Pyramid and they could resupply me right there. And then from there, I could just continue on and basically complete a Centennial Uxtraverse, you know, is, is like a subset of the whole thing. Wow. I, I was just wondering, because like, I, I've dreamt this up many a time, Andrew, and, and the San Juan portion always started with, with, with Wham under a full moon. Uh-huh. I'm just curious, like what your San Juan portion might, may look like, where, where it would start and, and end. That's pretty much it. You nailed it, man. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking, so we, we did another great adventure one time. We called the Weminuch Wipeout, which except minus uh, RGP. So Rio Grande Pyramid's kind of in the distance. But we did like Jupiter, you know, all the 14ers in Chicago Basin, Pigeon Turret, Jagged and Vestal, and then out. And, and so the thing is, is like on the Centennial record, you know, on the 14er record, basically the play is, you know, you start up at Chicago Basin. That's where you start the clock. You know, so you've taken the train in, you hike up there with a pal, you, you know, you set up a tent, you start the clock, your pal packs everything up and they go down. Okay. And then you do the 14ers and you come out and you catch the train going to Silverton. All right. So, I mean, that takes like, it's fast. It's like five hours and you're done with the Chicago Basin 14ers and you're only like five hours in on the clock. Right. And, uh, and I was, I was pretty spectacular, not to toot my own horn or anything, but like my timing was so perfect that I literally got to the train as I saw it pulling in, like, so, which is perfect. Cause you know, you don't want to be, be wasting yourself running down and then get there, you know, 15 minutes early or like uh, this guy, Eric Lee, he got there like an hour early and then the train was, you know, then they ran into some tree fall and then got delayed by several hours, you know? So yeah, just nightmare scenario. But uh, so so that, you know, it was just like clockwork for me on the 14 er record. But like with the Centennial record, I just don't know it well enough to count on catching the train. And I don't even know if the trains can be running this year. You know, honestly, like not 100 percent sure. So I was like, well, so I, I had originally thought about, you know, starting Chicago Basin and maybe going that same direction. But then, you know, I don't know. Recently, my plan had been just start on Vestal. And oh, well, because another thing, too, is if I was going the other direction, I, you have to do the Wham Ridge. You can't do this and not do the Wham Ridge. Right. That would just be so lame. Like and so I was planning on just going over the pass between the Trinities and Vestal drop down and going up the Wham Ridge, which is kind of annoying because, you know, you got to drop down and then come back up. But so it just made more sense to me. Well, why not just hike and start on the Wham Ridge, you know, um, and then, you know, make your way through and and maybe if the train was running you could try to hit it but if you didn't hit it the bad news is i just have to hike out the purgatory you know so it's like an extra 10 mile hike out so um and then 
and then but but before i and that that is sort of the current plan i had wanted to tie in rio grand pyramid as well just because i thought it'd be really cool just to knock those out in one big big run and like if you look at rio grand pyramid on a map it's like rio grand pyramid to vestal well it's not that much harder well well so the standard route on rio grand pyramid i think it's like 20 miles in there anyway that's actually one of the centennials i haven't done yet so i don't know that one but on the map it's a long ways in there so i was like yeah you know what's the difference but it's probably a big difference there's probably lots of passes and it's really rugged so i think the plan would be start at vestal and then we'll just you know have to go in there and just you know one off rio grand pyramid at some point but that that yeah it's, it's funny that that's what you're thinking because yeah i just i really like the way that would just line everything up you know for, for the san juans and actually you know the centennials are they they are so close to the 14ers in general that the route for like the support crew is almost exactly the same it, you know it's like you know it's almost just a few small changes, but there's some other really awesome routes in there too. Like, I don't know if, if you've ever climbed Dallas, you know, that's the hundredth highest peak, you know? And, uh, and so looking on the map, I was like, ah, oh, you know, it'd be really cool if Dallas would connect with Snuffles. And so I went and scouted that out and that's a great route, you know? And so I'm, I'm going to do that. So it's just like the way I'm going to link up some of these people that know the mountains, I think are really going to love some of these routes I'm going to be, be trying to do. Yeah, style points for sure. Yeah, we can't wait to follow along. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, sharing that with us. And I'd, I'd love to jump back, kind of rewind a little bit to 2015 and talk a little bit more while we have you just kind of of, of your 2015 record. Yeah. Um, so what my first question is, what prompted you to kind of come out of this pseudo retirement? You kind of hung it up and then felt inspired to get out there and try and crush the record again. What was that transition like? Yeah. And as usual, I mean, I have these really long winded responses for everything. So I apologize for that. But but basically, you know, so I told you the story, you know, I did the the biking record, which, oh, by the way, I should mention. So when I did it via bike, I did what I called self-powered, which meant that I had a crew. Right. So and and, and so since then, a couple of guys have done the self-supported, which is harder. Right. Because they're just out there by themselves. They got to get their own food. You know, but I don't really like the self-supported record as much on the 14ers because, as I mentioned before, I really like finding beautiful routes. And I like starting on one set of peaks, you know, starting here, going there and ending up somewhere else. If you've got your bike that you always come, have to come back to, it's just like you end up doing a lot of the, you know, you can't do a lot of those really cool routes, you know. So I really did like that, um, that, that style, the, the self-powered. But so, and, and like I said, I was more of a biker back then anyway. I mean, I love mountain biking. I had been doing mountain bike racing for a couple of years. And uh, so then I, um, I, you know, I did adventure racing for a while, but then I had, a, I had some kids and, uh, and basically I was like, you know, I just couldn't train enough anymore with the kids. And, you know, once I had my second kid, cause I was going to be the stay at home dad. And it was like, oh, you know, it's just too hard to try to train and, and get my work done and all that stuff. So basically I, I stopped adventure racing in like 2006, 2007. And then 2008 is when I started taking my sons up the 14ers. So for the next, you know, several years, all I did was hike with the kids, you know, in the summer times. And, uh, and, and so, you know, Calvin, he's, he had done them all twice by the time he was 10. And, uh, and then Axel, you know, he finished by the wow, time he was crazy. six. Holy cow. I believe <laughs> oh, that. So, oh yeah. Well, so, and, and Axel, it's pretty amazing. If you see pics, if when I see pictures of Axel, he's now this annoying teenager, like, <laughs> oh, he knows everything, you know, you, you know he's a, your classic annoying teenager. Right. But he was so little and so cute. 
And like, man, and he, you know, by the t- and, and, and he was small for his age. So not only was he six when we finished, but he was a small six, you know? And so, and so anyway, that was, he was six great- years old when he finished in the first years old. Well, we had one summer where, and it was never my goal nowadays. You know what they call it? They call it the determined dad award, <laughs> 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 no. but you know, the truth is it was never my plan to make him finish them all, but they liked it. Cause I had remembered when I was younger, I didn't really love, I, I still remember for hours staring at my stepdad's calves, you know, just being, like, oh, you know, just like, you know, I was tired, you know, and I didn't really love it, but these guys, they liked it so that we would do it a lot. And then, you know, one summer we just, man, we just, we did like 30 of them, you know, just that summer. And, and because I, I have a pretty good knowledge of the 14ers, it's like, I don't just, you know, it's efficient, right? So for example, we don't just go do and go, go do Yale. I would bring a big pack and we would do Yale, Harvard, Columbia, Oxford, Belford, Missouri, and Huron. So it's like one big trip, kind of like, you know, part, you know, part of a Nolan's right there. And so, and it would just be, be this, you know, basically you're backpacking through there, you know, yeah, and part uh, of a Nolan's and, with a six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> the Nolan six. The Nolan six. <laughs> exactly. We had some great, great adventures in there too. It was like, there's this one spot that I used to go, you probably, if you guys know Nolan's, you know, you know, when you're going between Harvard and Oxford, that's always been a big part of the strategy. How do you do that part? Right. And now I'm not, it feels like everyone pretty much does the same thing, you know, cutting through the willow swamp area. Right. Or is that what you guys do too? I mean, it seems like when I watch people, that's what people do. Um, I used to cut down a lot further downstream. So I would drop, I'd be dropping off sort of the, and, and anyway, so one time it got dark on us. Right. And, and, uh, and so, and we were looking for this camp spot that I had, I had seen it when I had done it with my son, Calvin. So now Axel's around and we got to do it with Axel. And, uh, you know, so we're hiking it's now it's after dark and I know there's this great campsite in there. And, uh, and so, so anyway, you know, we're going through these spider webs and we finally get to the trail, which they're like, dad, we're lost. You know, Oh, we're lost. And I'm like, no, there's definitely a trail in here. I promise. You know, so we find the trail, you know, after you cross the river and turn right. And then we get to where our camp spot's supposed to be. And there's this strange creature. And it's like something you'd see in Star Wars. It was like picture like a like a, a, a camel sized body with just a neck ends in two eyes, like no head, just a neck with two eyes. OK, so anyway, um, it turns out. So I, I'm like, everybody stand back. You know, I'm like, everybody get behind me. You're like, I creep forward, you know, like, what is this thing? And it turns out it was a, a freaking llama. And it was like just staring straight at me. So you couldn't see its head at all. Right. And but man. And so it turns out here we are like, you know, I mean, I, I mean, for, I mean, who would it be out there? You know, this is like 2008. Right. Or something. Or this is probably like 2010. I'm like, who would be out in Pine Creek Basin? There's just no reason for anybody to be out here, but there's like a llama packing group, right? <laughs> in the one spot that we were going to sleep in, you know? So anyway, so we had to, I don't know, it was like, we had to sleep under a rock, you know, basically it was, it wasn't the most comfortable, but uh, anyway, I just love some of those stories that kids really remember. Um, but that, that was one of the secrets towards getting them up so quickly was we did a lot of trips where we just knocked out a whole bunch of mountains, hmm. you know? How do you do Missouri there from Oxford? That's a debate on the Nolans, the route. Do you do oh. that, that, that really rough East ridge, ridge, East Ridge? Oh, well, now you're going to get into some of my little secrets now. Well, <laughs> so I have done, I've gone through the whole evolution, right, of, of the, the, the Missouri routes. Okay. So 
Um, well, I've never really done the standard route. You know, like if you drop down to the standard route and go up Missouri, there's just no way I would ever do that route. Like that's just way too far out of the way. Although I will say some of these people that can actually run, man, they can do that fast, right? So like they just, you can, because what you can do is from Belford, you can like run straight down, um, you know, straight okay. down the grass and you can like hit the standard route going up Missouri, right? So, so you can do that and then you can get, but then you have to go up the trail and then up the, on the long ridge. Right. So that's, that's one option. Okay. So another option, and you were asking me about Belford to Missouri, right? Like, like the ridge. Yeah, that ridge, the most direct okay. route is that nasty ridge, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, the next option I would say from Elkhead pass is that people I've seen them do, um, you know, if they're not interested in any sort of like technical stuff is you can, Drop like 400 feet down to the left, you know, sort of to the south off of Elkhead Pass. And you can then you can contour around by there's a lake and you can basically make your way to the saddle between Iowa and Missouri. Iowa, yeah. OK, and then from there you can go up. And I would say that's a better route than the standard route because it's shorter and it's really not that bad, you know. Um, and then it gets the more you drop down the easier train it's going to be so if you do, you want to drop down a little bit less so far and start contouring across you'll run into slightly more difficult terrain the way i always did it like for for many years was i would what i would do is i would get to elkhead pass and then you follow the ridge as if you were you know staying on the ridge and then you get to the one spot where it's okay wow now it's class four bam right in front of you it's really obvious you know you you can't mistake it that's the hard part and then you can skirt the cliffs all right, to, down to the left, you know, on the south side. And then what I would always do, though, I swear I could never find the same way up. And I have gone up every single one of those stupid goalies thinking I was finally there. And in all conditions, snow, you know, snow bridges. One time I was like, you know, like the whole face of Missouri is baking in the sun. And, uh, and so it gets really warm. So if there's snow up there, it melts on it. And you basically have a snow bridge. And I was going along and Bam, fell right in there. I, it would have looked like I just disappeared if someone had been watching it. You know, and other times I was there in the dark, you know, and I'd go up and it was just some ice gully and it was just a disaster. Then I figured out, well, you can continue past and you go past all the cliffs and just make sure you're past all of them. And then you can head straight up and it's kind of this loose scree, but it's super annoying scree because it's like you'll take a step and then try to hold on to the avalanche of rocks, you know, right? And then you're trying to make your way up there. So it, I, I, you know, so that, that way worked for me for a long time. And then, so then I had a friend who was like, he, he went out and checked out the East Ridge. He was wanted to climb the Ridge. And he was like, you know, it wasn't that bad, you know, because see for me, you know, I told you how much, you know, Roach influenced me. Right. In his book, it says, you know, oh, you know, the East Ridge is a thing of, you know, in my nightmares, you know, the East Ridge. Right. So I, you know, so I kind of stayed away for all these years, you know, so then in winter, when I was doing Nolan's, and I was actually really sick. You know, it's funny. I took this video. I started talking and, oh, man, I was so out of it. And it was in the middle of the night. And, oh, man, this is one of those times when there was this guy online who's kind of he uh, he he puts down the the 14er uh, winter record attempt that I did because I got lucky. It was a low snow year. You know, so he's always like, well, that record is BS because he had low snow. But he doesn't know some of the crap I went through. It's like it's the middle of the night. There's, and, and the thing when I was doing it in the winter is that there was always these like massive winds because like the jet stream just parked itself in Colorado that year. And so 
that's one of the reasons why we had low snow is because we had these massive winds blowing the whole year. And so anyway, it's like 60 mile an hour winds. And those are hard, by the way, you know, when you're in 60 mile an hour gusts, you know, they, they will knock you on your butt. So anyway, I go up, I follow his instructions, which was to go up that class four thing, which had this like dusting of snow on it. And I still remember like I had a crampon on and it had like one little millimeter like and that was it. If that one little millimeter that was on this little slab that was underneath this like dusting of snow gave away. I mean, that was it. You know, I would be dead. <laughs> and uh, and so that was like pretty terrifying. You know, so I barely scraped my way up that. Then I get to this ridge that he's talking about and that he said it wasn't a big deal, but it was the wind was blowing so hard. I, I could not do that. And at this point, I'm not going to backtrack down the thing that I just like scared the crap out of myself on. So I ended up like just contouring, making my way just, you know, to the basically just across the cliffs. And I just remember at that point, like I'd be have ice axe in my and I had a mitten, you know, stuff that in. And then my 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 feet as I'd kick a step, the whole chunk of snow would just fall away. Ooh. And uh, so it was really terrifying. And uh, and so then anyway, make a long story short, I survived, <laughs> you know, and I made it out of there, but it was brutal. Right. And so later, you know, when I was talking to, to Joel, Joel again, and I was like, man, that route really sucked, <laughs> you know, and, and so he's describing again. So I had to go see it again. And now now that I've you know, I found it, it's actually not that bad. Like so if, if you I wouldn't recommend going and doing it like, um, you know, uh, like without scouting at first, but like, if you just, you know, feel comfortable on class three and four, I would go scout it out. Like, honestly, I'd go to Elkhead pass. I'd go. The hardest part is definitely that very first part that you're looking at, right? When it's like, Oh wow, here's where the hard part starts. That is the hardest part. And you can make that class three, you know? And, and then once you get up there, there's different options and none of them are that bad. And, and so you can actually get on the ridge. And so that is the way I'm sticking with from now on. I would just stick with the, uh, just, it's not quite the ridge direct. You still kind of skirt the ridge to the left a little bit, but you're basically like, you know, you're basically on the ridge the whole way, you know, just off to the left a little bit. So I think that's a great way to do it. Before we get in detail, more questions, can you catalog all the different accomplishments you've done? So we've talked about the 14 er record and then you've done Nolan's and you've done snowy nolans and you did the holy nolans and you've biked between them and so right now we're talking about doing nolans and then your snowy snowy nolans 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 is what i called it yes Nolans. okay how different is the snowlands route with avalanche danger compared to the nolans route in the summer yeah well so the thing about um well first of all me so when i did it did that in winter you know you know they say that ignorance is bliss right well, I had never climbed a 14er in winter before that. <laughs> so I, I just, I just decided, Hey, I'm going to go do this. And I hadn't climbed any in winter. So I would hike with these guys that had hiked and they were a lot more scared of avalanche danger than I was. So that said, I don't think anyone should take avalanche danger lightly, you know, but for me, I am not a skier. So if I see a something that a skier would look at and be like, oh, look at that beautiful slope. I'm like, oh, look at that beautiful ridge line, you know? And, and so the thing about the 14ers is that when you're up above tree line, it doesn't really matter how much snow you've had that year because in winter, all the snow is going to be blown away, you know, and you will get pockets where it's really deep because the wind will 
loaded up in areas and you might get there after a fresh snowstorm where there's more. But in general, it's really not that bad. The thing that really gets you in winter is to me, well, at least in my opinion, it's man in the trees, those long approaches or like if you can't get to those trailheads, you know, the summer trailheads in your, you know, Missouri turns out Missouri and Huron are a pain in the butt to do in winter because you have to start down at like the lake, you know, Clear Creek Lake. And you do like the extra, it's like an extra 10 miles just to get to the summer trailhead, you know, and hopefully you got skis. Hopefully you're not on snowshoes like I was most of the time. But, um, but so for me that year, so man, that is another thing you could do a whole episode on snowlands. Like that was, you know, you know, people, when I did it, I actually timed it for the winter Olympics, you know, cause I was like, you know, this is going to be my winter Olympics, you know? And so I was doing it during, you know, the Olympics back, back in 2018. And, uh, and it was like, it was, even though it was the low snow year, so I didn't feel threatened. Like, so for example, say coming off Tabawatch, you know, it was actually easier because I just got in the, the snow gully, had snow all the way down. I didn't have to be in that crappy, like, you know, uh, like Rocky gully. Like if you drop straight off the summit of Tabawatch and coming off Princeton, it was just a beautiful glissade. So a lot of it was nice, but so much of it is just painful wallowing. And just the thing about winter, it's just like powdery snow. Like, so, so I had snowshoes. I didn't have skis, which I wish I knew how to ski at that point. I've done more skiing since. And, and I tell you, I hate snowshoes with a passion. But <laughs> at the time, it was the way to go for me, you know. And uh, but but like so but but so you step with your snowshoes and it's like you're not even wearing snowshoes. You know, they just go through the snow's not consolidated that time of year because it hasn't gone through this freeze thaw cycle yet. Right. It doesn't get warm enough for it to freeze. And so it's basically just this loose powder. And so no matter what, you're always in your waist and it's waist deep. And so a lot of my decisions on snowlands were to avoid wallowing in powder. So, for example, um, picture like um, Rockdale, like after you come off of Huron. You know, and uh, well, first of all, so I'm on um, I'm on Huron and, you know, I'm looking down at the standard route that comes up Huron and it's just solid sea of whites. OK, and I'm like, oh, I am not going down there. You know, like I just did not want. So I actually did a great route. I just went directly north along the ridge from Huron and it's a nice sort of snaking ridge. And then it was the most beautiful 3,000 foot glissade in this amazing little gully that drops you right down to Rockdale. It was unbelievable. It's, and it gets super narrow, like at the bottom. It's really cool. I mean, you wouldn't want that to avalanche behind you for sure, but you could tell it, it wasn't a threat. I mean, I, it definitely, there, it, it didn't up, up above tree line. There just wasn't that much snow. So then I got to Rockdale. And so that worked great. But then, so, so looking at La Plata from there, the whole thing, the road, the trail, it all would have just been waist deep powder, you know, and I wasn't going to have that. So I was like, okay, so looking at the map, I'm like, well, I'm just going to go directly from Rockdale. I'm going to go head straight up the mountain and get on this ridge. And I'm going to follow the ridge to, to La Plata. And there's this one spot that kind of looks like, I mean, it looks like Patagonia from far away. If you're ever looking at this spot, like it, it gets you from this ridge line I was on up to La Plata. And I thought, well, maybe I can make it work, you know? So I go up on the ridge and this is in howling winds, zero visibility, wide out the whole way. I mean, I've got these great wind videos from the whole thing. And then I got to Patagonia up there and yeah, there was no way. I mean, there was no way I was getting across there. So then I had to actually descend all the way down, you know, so all that time hiking up there. But 
the point is I would have done anything to avoid all the wallowing around in the snow. And, uh, and so, and then I didn't realize at the time I got super lucky on Albert um, because I did find a path out of there. You know, a lot of times, see a lot of times when people do these in winter, I don't know if you've ever followed like the winter people, but one thing I wanted to avoid was that people would always like argue about their little purple snowflake or something, you know, that they get to put on their, you know, when you climb it, you get your little snowflake. And then there was like the whole trench poaching issue, right? Oh, so people like, like you know, you, you sit yeah. here and you see, okay, yeah. so someone, oh, someone just went up, you know, pick a hard one, let's say, you know, here on, you know, oh, so ah, I'm going to go up here on tomorrow because they put in the trench, you know, and that would make it so much easier, you know, because they did all the work, you know, and you just follow their trench up. So that, that was kind of a big deal. So to get around that, my rule for myself was I wasn't going to do any research. If I showed up and there was a trench, I was going to take it, but I'd never got online to see where people had been or anything like that. And, um, and so I did get lucky on Albert because man, I, I was just sort of coming down the standard route because I had looked down the Nolan's direction, you know, even though I would have loved to have gone down that 3000 feet. But then it's just this, like, you just know it's miles of just wasty powder. Right. And so, so I was like, no, thank you. So I thought maybe, you know, I, I'd follow the standard route down and then I lost the, the route because, you know, the way it was also windblown, but then I did find a nice, beautiful trench that at least got me to the Albert trailhead. And, uh, so, but, but, so for me, I, I forget exactly what got me rambling off in this direction, but, but, uh, you know, in winter, it's definitely like about, you know, it's the work you put in, in deep snow below tree line. But when you get above tree line, you know, there's, it's not, so, you can easily avoid with ridges and stuff like that. You can usually avoid, I shouldn't say always and easily, but for me, I never, you know, I was always avoiding anything that looked like it would avalanche, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So it's this year, I finally got an avalanche transceiver, learned how to use it, got the probe. I got all the gear now, but back then I didn't even know how to use that stuff, you know, but my whole goal, what I would tell the family was, look, I am going to be staying on the rocks, you know? So <laughs> Andrew, it's funny that you said that you spend all winter avoiding waist deep powder because that's like the opposite thing yeah. of what we try to do, which is oh, yeah. find the waist deep powder. Right. So yeah. thank you for leaving some for the rest of us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. That. Hmm. Well, you know, just last year I did this thing called the Benedict 100, which is this like hundred mile like ski tour through all the huts, you know, it's like the 10th mountain division huts. And it's like, so you spend five nights and you link them all up. So finally, I kind of got some time on some skis, you know, and when I was doing this, you know, the, the record thing in the, in winter, uh, when I was doing that, like at first a guy had heard that I had once been a teleskier and he just let me borrow his teleskis. And, and at the same time, another guy gave me some old skis, but the thing was, I was just really bad at it. And, and so, but now with that Benedict 100, I've had a little more experience and I'm just now I'm just like looking back, it's like good grief. Like skis are so much more fun. Like I would have, I would have like loved to do some of those miles of like the, the powder with the skis on, but with the snowshoes on, it was like, all it was, it was like, oh, how was I going to avoid that stuff? You know, <laughs> just make sure but, you but don't that do not do that. You know, <laughs> what's that? Oh, yeah. Well, so yeah. And, and, you know, being a teleskier, when I first started skiing, I was always in a walk mode, you know, and uh, that's probably one of the reasons I suck so bad. <laughs> 
So no one's, you got to go below 60 hours is, is the, is the goal, right? Is there a, is there a threshold hours for snow ones? Is it, is it double? Is it 120 hours or what's the. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Oh, you guys would not be too impressed with my snow ones time. I try to tell people how hard it was. It took me, it was almost five days and, and that was not taking it easy. That was, I mean, I mean, I did sleep like, uh, like, so for example, like the first day, I pushed through, you know, it started, oh my gosh, the winds were so bad on Shivano that there was a, this guy, Rob Barlow, he's actually the first person to do all the centennials in one season. So he's, he's a friend of mine and he was, came up there with his dog. And then this other guy, Justin, the winds were so strong. It ripped the dog's jacket off and then the dog was getting blown away. So he turned back, <laughs> you know, but anyway, because it was so windy, you know, I did, I was able to basically complete day one. It was like a long Nolan's day one. I mean, I made it out to Princeton, you know, I'd started in the early morning, you know, like I, it was dark, right? So it was dark, started, did Shivano. And by the time I got to Avalanche Trailhead, it was like five in the morning. So it had taken me about 24 hours, and, but, but I was super tired. So I was like, well, I'll take a nap and tomorrow I'll just do Yale, you know, I'll just do Yale. So I slept into like 1030 and I decided to hike up the road. And I'm just going to do the standard route on Yale because I figured, well, the standard route is probably the way to go versus the East Ridge in the wintertime. You know, I, I, I don't know. Anyway, and then I could hike up the road for three, three miles. And uh, and I was like, and I'm going to be done early, so I don't need to bring a flashlight. And, uh, you know, so I'll just pack light, you know, so some foreshadowing there. <laughs> <laughs> so then, you know, it turns out and, and then I was like, wow, this is amazing. There's a trench, you know, so I'm. I'm, you know, following this trench for a while. And then it was just so sad when I got to this little rise and the, the trench turned, did a U-turn and it went back. And it was like, no, you know, then I was <laughs> on my own. Right. And so trudging through the freaking deep snow and I got up on Yale. And so this is when it got so and I was running a little late at this point because it, it was hard work, you know, to get up there. And so um, I ended up dropping down one of the steep gullies, you know, in a bigger snow year, maybe it would have been more of an avalanche threat, but I didn't think it was a big threat. So I just glissaded down and I, you know, I, I, I'm getting near tree line and then I notice something's hitting the back of my leg. And so I take my pack. It turns off. It's one of my snowshoes and my other snowshoes gone. And I'm about to be heading into the trees, like huh. not having my snowshoes isn't an option. And now I'm like, oh crap, it's like 3.30. You know, in summer, that's not that scary, you know. But in winter, I've got like an hour of daylight left, right? Oh. And so I ended up turning around and I'm like, okay, hiking back up. Now, where could this snowshoe go on? And I had, I, I, I basically had given myself, okay, if I get to that spot and I don't see it, I'm just going to have to go without it. And I got to this spot and then I saw it way up as high as I could see. <laughs> I see my snowshoe uh, in the snow. So I, I was able to climb up and get it. So, and thank goodness, because then you get into those trees. You know, it's like one of the worst parts of Nolan's for me is trying to descend, trying to find the golden route from Yale down to the, tra the trail, you know, like through all the trees and stuff like that. Um, are you guys, can you think, like, you know what I'm talking about there? Like some people take the airplane gully, the old airplane oh. crashes. You should see my like satellite tracker map of it. I mean, I've literally canvassed the whole thing and I still don't have a good way through. But in wow. winter, it was just, you know, you're wallowing, you know, you're in super deep snow, your snowshoes aren't really helping, but you'd be really screwed without them. And so then it got dark, you know, and I didn't have my light. <laughs> so, and I got saved because some soul went and skied to Cranky Lake. 
in the in the winter. And so I was able to get on their ski track and get out to the Harvard Columbia Trailhead. If that hadn't been there, I mean, I wouldn't have ever known where the trail was. I mean, my my cell phone lights, you know, when I turned on the the, the, the light, it was like you're watching it. It's like 53, 52, 51, you know. So, oh, man, it would have been really ugly. So, so uh, anyway, that was a day. And then where, where else? Oh, yeah. Then I basically did Harvard, Columbia, Oxford, Belford, Missouri. I slept under a tree down the, over by uh, Huron. And then let's see, then, oh, then it took me like, wait, did it take a whole day to get over Huron? My gosh. Yeah, I must have slept <laughs> in late that day. Because, yeah, it did. It took like a whole day just to be Huron. And then, and then La Plata. And then, and then Elbert Massive. Yeah, it was, it was massive in winter. So five days. So I don't know if anyone just does it in winter, it's impressive. And do you yeah. guys, have you guys heard of Eric Sullivan? You know, he's, he's had many attempts on Nolan's. Oh, you know, oh man, man, if I was going to write a book about Nolan's, he, I would devote an entire chapter to Eric Sullivan. So he was, he used to be, when I was in adventure racing, he was on team Crested Butte. These were like our nemesis. We could never beat these guys. They were too tough. And Sully was like, he was like their, they're tough guy. You know, he would just, he would be, he'd just, you know, shut up and give him the big backpack and he'll go. Right. So anyway, he was kind of interested in, uh, in Nolan's and one of the saddest stories ever in Nolan's is that, so he was, and I forget the year, this would have been probably 2016, 17 ish, if I'm remembering, but he was, oh, it was the same year Ted Mahon did it. And so he was doing it with this guy, Ted Mahon who was one of those guys that skied with Chris Davenport, you, you know, Chris Davenport and Ted Mahon. I think they did all the, the skiing centennials or something, but anyway, so Sully's going with Mahon. And at one point he, he said, you know, Mahon, you're just going too slow. So I got to leave you behind, you know? And so he was flying and he was going to be the first person to finish in under 50 hours. And this was years before anybody else was going to be close. Right. So, I mean, at least a couple of years, right. So it was going to be a pretty amazing time if he could have pulled it off. And so there he is. And this is after failing a couple other times. So it's like his third or fourth time. And in the middle of the night, he's so far ahead of schedule. It's, it's like, you know, it's and, and now people, it's more common. But back then, it was pretty uncommon to be on like Elbert at like 11 p.m., you know, or something like that. It was like early, right? And so he, the message is like, and he's going south to north. So he's just got massive left. And he's at something like 43, 41 hours at this point. So he's clearly going to be done in under 50 hours. But the message that he sent was from the top of South Albert, right? And so in the night, his brain got all whacked, right? And so, he, you know, picture you're going over Bull Hill and then you get up and you're supposed to sort of veer left to get to Albert. But if you accidentally veered right, you're going to end up on oh. South Albert. So in his brain, it's like, bing, you know, Albert, and then you know, for him, the next step is going to be go a little bit past the summit and then drop down to the left. So that's what he did. And then his tracker died and no one saw oh. him for like a half a day, you know, and it was like, what happened to Eric? His girlfriend called me. She's like, Andrew, do you know what happened to Eric? And I was like, well, I, I have no idea, you know, but I assume he's okay. And I explained, <laughs> I mean, it just made sense what he must have, the mistake that must have been made. And then it turns out that he and this guy's with him, like, yeah, the tracker died and they were, there's a whole bunch of willows over there. And they ended up hiking out to the car on the plata and they quit, you know? So, and then, and then recently <sighs> he's actually tried to do this in, in May a couple of times. And, you know, like, so first time he did it in May, he was flying. I mean, he was on record pace in, in May, 
you know, just because he moved so fast on his skis, you know, but then he like hurt his shin. Um, and so then he had to like post hole out from Yale with this like gashed in shin, you know? Uh. And so then he was going to go for it another time. And, you know, he was ready to smash the record again. And he's on, he's going South to North again. And he's only on Antero this time. So he's going the third mountain and he breaks his ankle coming down Antero. And basically, you know, he sends out the message like broke my ankle. I'm okay. And then he basically crawls out on his own because he didn't want anyone to help him. And then last year, oh my gosh, last year I'm watching him again. You know, in May, he was on the skis. He was dedicating every summit to a different seal, um, you know, in the military. And so, you know, so, so we were following him. And so he's doing a great again. And he gets to um, Clohesi Lake. And the message that gets sent out was boot problems. So I guess he waited there until someone came in and fixed the boot. So then in the morning, like, you know, he gets started at like five in the morning again. And the next message is from the top of Iowa. <laughs> and it's like, and I was like, now what on earth is he doing on Iowa? So he came down Missouri and instead of going over to Huron, he like backtracked up to Iowa. It made no sense. And then, so then it turns out he got, you know, disoriented, you know? And so, so then he, so then he came down and he hiked instead of going up Huron, just skipped Huron and he hiked out to Rockdale. At that point, I think he's done. But then the message is, well, I going to go on over La Plata. And then the next point that he, you know, after, you know, skipping Huron. And then the next point that he marks is on the top of a 13er called Rinker Peak, which it's like, it's not La Plata. And so I'm just like, <laughs> what is going on? So I, I, I actually called him. And I'm like, man, I really want to help you out, Eric. You know, so, so Andrea and I, we went and we met him and we're like, listen, man, you're carrying the satellite tracker, it is like a GPS. You just tie it to your phone and I promise you, you will never get lost, you know? And, and he was like all gung ho. And then, and then that Joey guy came and did it in like 41 hours. And, and I don't know, I don't, I think at that point, Eric was like, oh, wow. Like, I don't think I'm in a break. I mean, he was probably looking at like 45 hours, but like 41 hours, that's just insane, you know? So, so anyway, but Eric had so many misadventures on Nolan's and, but he's also made it the farthest uh, skiing. And he actually moves fast in winter, whereas I would, you know, it took me forever, you know, it took me like five days where he, he was moving really good. So I think that would be cool. Actually, I think a, a ski Nolans would be a really cool thing. So there's no rule right now about the Snowy Nolans or Snowlands? No, like I mean, there there's, is like not, 60? there's not. Yeah, there's, there's no rule, you know, and, and to me too, you know, I was always sort of on the side of the, I didn't really care if someone made the 60 hours, you know, for me, you know, there was like, I mean, when you look at the whole 60 hours thing, you know, for a while, it was kind of a big, there was like seven guys, you know, so it was kind of like, it was really cool, you know, if you could like join the club of guys that made 60 hours, right? And then I happened to be, well, not the first, uh, this guy, you know, there was a guy that finished in 60 hours in one minute back when it was an event. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Oh. Like, can you imagine in the actual event when it was a, a run, you know? I, the story is, is the race director was looking at his watch, counting down the time and okay, it's time's up. Boom. You know, and then he's talking to someone, he looks over and there's the guy, he showed up. So <sighs> 60 hours, one minute, you know, and, and actually I think I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was this guy, John Roberts, who then ended up holding the record for many, many years. Like the next year he went back and, and made amends for missing it. But like, to me, like I was always like, there were so few people that actually finished it in over 60 hours. Like at one point it was John Roberts, 
I, you know, the first time I did Nolan's, I made a big mistake coming down massive and I was, uh, and, and I finished in 60 hours and 19 minutes and, and, you know, and I had done it self-supported and I was the first person to do it or sorry, unsupported. And I was the first person to do it unsupported. And there were actually people being like, well, too bad that didn't count. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I just did it unsupported, you know? And, and so I was sort of like, you know, the 60 hour time limit. I mean, I think it's fun to have that as your goal, but I'm definitely not going to be like, well, huh, that didn't count. You know, yeah, you were, you know, you took 10 minutes too long or even like anyone that does it in 63, 65, 70 hours. I still think that's super impressive. So, I mean, I would count it. Like, I don't know why, if there was a list, why it would have to get cut off at 60 hours. I mean, I think that's more of a, I think it comes over from trail running and, you know, you have these, you know, you know, I've heard of these great battles where people are trying to officially finish the Leadville 100 and nobody cares about all the winners who it's so easy for, them. but there's this guy and he's got like 30 seconds to make it this, like the last down the straightaway and try to make it, it could be really exciting, you know, but in Nolan's, I don't know. I'm sort of, I don't really care. So. I don't know if so in winter, though, if anyone tried to say 60 hours and then, then nobody will ever finish, you know, I don't think so, except for maybe Sullivan on his on his skis. So I think it's just fun to think of ways to make it harder because, you know, it has gotten really easy for some of these people now. Like if you look at Joey, basically the way he said he thought of it, the way he thought of it in his mind was he would just got up really early. So like midnight. So to him, it's just an early start. <clears throat> so if you're in that mindset. He only had to go through one night. I mean, the hard thing about Nolan's is always that second night. But see, in his mind, he, he didn't even have a second night because he started at midnight. So, you know, and then uh -huh. he, he finished right after the first night, right? Because it only took him 41 hours. You know, so it's, it's, it's impressive that you're going so fast. But like that battle of the second night, it wasn't there. And so to me, that's kind of sad. It's kind of sad when you get these guys that are just truly amazing athletes you know, and they can do it really well. But then you forget that the person that took 60 hours, they had to battle for like maybe two nights of no sleep and, you know, where they're hallucinating and stuff like that. And I think those are pretty amazing stories too, you know? So, so I, I hope that that doesn't get lost with all these people that are super fast. You know, it's still a great challenge to go out there and, and, you know, and, and just, just do it. And if you're not going to make 60 hours, don't stop on like, massive or albert finish if you can that's that's my opinion